You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome back to the Limited Upside podcast, an actual podcast this time, not just a live chat. I'm Mike Prada. Ben Epstein is here. Hi, Ben. Hey, Mike. Good to be on a non-locker room podcast with you. Not No disrespect to locker room, but it's kind of nice. No, 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 no disrespect. No disrespect. All, all due respect, to be honest. All due respect. But that being said, it's nice to kind of have a, a singular topic, uh, a guest that we are choosing to talk to, not just are really cool callers who do have uh, their own perspective on the sport. But I'll let you intro the rest, or I don't want to kill you. Yeah, them. yeah. Ben, I think you're going to be really excited for this conversation. Today we have the author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever, my triumph teammate, Jake <laughs> Fisher from Bleacher Report. The book is out on May 4th, which is, as you listen to us, about a week from now. Jake, how are you? I'm good, guys. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it, it's it, it's around the corner. Yeah, we're less than a week away, so that, it's it's pretty nuts. How is the promo in like a remote world? You know, because you're not doing it. You're probably not doing as much in person stuff as you would normally when promoting a book. Um, I mean, it's it, there's. I think like everybody who is fortunate to still have a job and things working uh, for them during all this. Like, it is nice that. Like I just kind of rolled out of bed, threw on a hat and jumped on the Zoom with you guys. Um, but yeah, like I was going to do, I mean, the book kind of does, you know, Philly, Boston, LA, like the main three teams. And then it jumps around to Phoenix and Sacramento and Minnesota and Cleveland. I wasn't going to do that whole of a tour, but like I did want to go to Boston and Philly and LA. Um, so that's a bummer. I will, I will try to do, we're, we're in the works of getting it approved by the park, but we're trying to do something in McCarran Park, like a small outdoor book signing thing here in the city. Um, and then I am trying to go down to Philly. Um, I have a friend who opened up a bar down there, so they have a nice outdoor backyard. But other than that, it's been like kind of convenient to just do all this stuff from home. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wish I could get out in, in person and meet some people. That'd be great. When did you start writing the book? So I started writing it, like we were just talking before we went, out, went on air about like first drafts and all that stuff. Like I was writing, I probably wrote like 25,000 words in like January, February of 2020 that like at a certain point I realized this is not going in the book. Like this is all background. And like, like the book kind of covers 2012, 2016, but the 2012, 2013 season is really just the background context to explain to you why all these teams were in the position that they were in to, if you were Philly to trade Drew Holiday, if you were Boston to move on from KG and Paul Pierce, if you were Phoenix, Steve Nash trade to LA, Orlando trading Dwight Howard to the Lakers, the Lakers dealing with all that. And that super team of this is going to be fun. SI cover falling apart. Like all that stuff is important to include, but the book is like 13 to 16. So I was going back to like, like I remember writing something about, 
AI almost getting traded to Boston back in 2006 before he went to the Nuggets, which like I don't really think got too like I found some like good reporting that just like wasn't going to be in the book. So I really sat down like honestly the first the first week of the lockdown really um, like late March I was like I need to actually figure out how to condense this thing down into 300 pages and I really kind of wrote it all in those first couple months which was a nice distraction but it was also definitely a challenge for sure. Yeah, we've talked about this book for a while. I know, you, you know, especially with our, my book writing process, I know you've been working on this pitch for a long time. Yeah. Like you you kind of have been – a lot of the stuff that you've done, certainly the reporting was stuff you did live in the moment, and you just were sort of looking for that opportunity to kind of condense it all together, right? Like yeah. you've been kind of working through this this topic. I don't know if you remember, but when I was in college still – I went to, I wrote about it in the epilogue. I went to Philly's Miller Air House somewhere, I think on Roosevelt Bowl, like off the boulevard. Um, I don't remember exactly where. They have all, they have like multiple locations. Um, and like, it was for Liberty Ballers and the rights to Ricky Sanchez. And like, this was the early stages of that whole crazy fan base. Like 300 plus people jammed into this back room to watch the lottery and they were jumping up and down. I remember Mm -hmm. thinking like, this needs to be a long form. Like at the time, long form, like the new long, uh, (laughs) whatever you want to call it, you know, the structure online where you would scroll down, there'd be all the nice pictures and whatnot. Like Mm -hmm. that was my journalistic goal at the time. I was like, this will be it. Like, I think I pitched you like getting a haircut with Nerlens Noel. Oh yeah. I do remember that pitch. Yeah. I do remember that one. (laughs) Just wanted to include it all in the one thing. Cause like being there, it was a moment. Like, I don't know, Ben can probably attest to this too. Like you're from Philly at that time, even if you weren't writing about the team or a fan of the team, like, anyone would just volunteer their opinion to you about the process. If you just announce yourself as being from Philly, like I wear this Eagles hat a lot to shoot arounds and stuff, partially as like a remembrance thing. Like I think some people in the NBA just kind of like recognize me from that, which is good. The security guard at MSG definitely helps me get past him, which is like (laughs) anyone who knows what I'm talking about. That is a huge. uh, Yeah. If you, if you get past the MSG security guard, uh, you know, that that's a really tough obstacle. Yeah. So a lot of people would just say, Oh, you're from Philly. Like the Sixers, I really like what they're doing. So it, it, it started from there. And then I went to school, I was in school in Boston and, um, I would, I would get credential from slam. I interned there after my freshman year, um, while also doing stuff with you at SP Nation. And like I would get these credentials at night and they were tanking too. And when Philly came in to play them, it felt like the tanking Super Bowl. And like who, and, and it was a narrative too that a lot of people were writing about, like which of these teams is going to rebuild back, you know, faster to and get back to that uh, contending realm again. Cause like they played in the 2012 Eastern semifinals, that whole game seven there. It was like a whole thing. And then, as I started thinking about it more and more as a book, like I kind of realized tanking, I think was like the biggest natural side effect to when all these analytical type GMs really started to spread around the league. Like Daryl and Sam Presti really started like in Houston and OKC, but like then it really spread everywhere. Like Sam Presti went to Orlando a year before Hinky went to Philly and Ryan McDonough went to Phoenix and Pete Dalsander that same summer 2013 went to Sacramento. David Griffin came to power in Cleveland. And as those guys started emerging and taking power, like the map suggests every championship team needs about two ish superstars. And the best way to get them, if you're anybody, let alone a small market is through the draft. Yeah. As, as Ben likes to say all the time, the worst place to be is the middle, right? Yeah, correct. 
Correct. Yeah. For all, for all sports, but specifically a sport where you play five players and getting to that kind of apex takes time, luck, specifically luck. I mean, that's one of the most important parts of this whole thing. Yeah. All those teams you mentioned took a similar route to get to very different outcomes. And, you know, yeah. and part of that is who you draft, how you evaluate, how successful you are at figuring out the talent you do have on your roster. And one of the cool parts is expectations versus results as well. When you have no expectations, everything's cool. Everything's gravy. Watching a guy like TJ become kind of a TJ McConnell become a cult, you know, uh, uh, you know, following type personality in Philadelphia was really fun and it had nothing to do with the success of the team. In fact, it probably was antithetical to success when TJ McConnell is the person you're rooting for the hardest, um, yeah. you know, in the city. But yeah, I think expectations being low can sometimes be the most high level water or high watermark for fun when it comes to being a fan of a team. And the thing you said at the top there about how everything kind of went a different way, like that's why I wanted to, like originally I did want to write just a Philly book and then certain circumstances emerged and like, it kind of got pushed towards this more broad um, it's more broad, but also still like hyper-focused and reported and there's new information on all the teams involved. Um, but it became that idea partially because of what we talked about all the GMs there, but also because like you said, you can't just say we're tanking, we're going to get this guy and we're going to be back in contention. Like there's a, first of all, lottery luck involved, which obviously in this story gets, you know, a whole uh, monkey wrench with they pass lottery reform because of this era we're talking about. But then like you got to get the guy. And then if you get the guy, you also have to do everything you can to develop and build a program around him. Like Phoenix is con- contending right now, mostly because they drafted Devin Booker 13th, um, in 2015, like that was part, that was right in that tanking type period. Well, they didn't really actually tank what they were trying to. They didn't think Devin Booker was going to be the guy, but lo and behold, he's the guy. They then, you know, stump stumble into DeAndre in that year. Uh, they, they stumble down the standings. Chris Paul, all of a sudden, you know, now his eyes interested in Phoenix and there you go. So it, there's not just one route to do it because there isn't one route. Like there's no way any team ever will say we're going to do this plan and it will go to his plan. There's just too much luck and unforeseen circumstances in the NBA. Yeah. So I, you sent me a copy of the book. I was able to read through it this morning. In my mind, you mentioned the teams that were, what's that? I appreciate that again. Yeah, absolutely. It, in my mind, when I was reading it, I felt like there were six main characters, teams-wise. You mentioned a lot of the teams that were discussed, but I jotted down. It seems to me the main characters of this book are the Sixers, the Celtics, the Magic, the Kings, the Suns, and the Lakers. As the one, the one team that uh, we haven't talked about. And one of the things that struck me, and we can talk about each of these teams. I'm sure Ben is going to be most interested about the Sixers side of it. But yeah. one of the things is, that strikes me is that the only one of those six teams where all of this worked out for the people that are still there is Boston. Mm-hmm. And that's a point you made in the book that in different ways, things derailed these efforts for all of these teams, except for Boston. So in your mind, I've kind of jotted down like what I think kind of went wrong for each of them, but like in your mind, in a general frame, what do you think went wrong for yeah. everyone other than Boston? Exactly. Well, the, the the flip side of it, the team you talk about, the Lakers, and the reason why they're, I think, a necessary case study in this whole anecdotal history and this, you know, exploration of that time period is they they're they're not the small market, right? Like they are the Lakers. And there's a quote that an executive gave me in the uh, epilogue 
And he says like the Lakers were the mo- the worst managed team for four years, and they still got LeBron and AD and won the title. And that's exactly why tanking matters, right? Like the Lakers had all this ownership bus family infighting. You know, unfortunately, Dr. Jerry Bus dies in I think 2013, and it just kind of starts this kind of rift between Genie and Magic and those old school guys, and then like Mitch Kupchak and Mike D'Antoni and his like coaching staff. There was like the Laker. I think it still is today. The Lakers, like, uh, fraternity of legends, like, have say that, like, Lakers community has say and, like, they all wanted to be behind Kobe where all these teams like Boston and Phoenix and Orlando are moving on from their title contending teams realizing the clock was up. The Lakers don't tank, but they ended up having to accidentally because they weren't good enough. Boston... Well, you know, they have Robert Sarver in Phoenix and, and the Vivek stuff in Sacramento is insane. That's like some of the most. <laughs> stuff in the book. What, what's your favorite Vivek story from the book that you can reveal? Um, my favorite Vivek story from the book is probably a little. T- I mean, there's two. There's a little tiny anecdote that like someone really told someone. T- I didn't really write it in the book, but it's like alluded to. Someone told me that they really think Vivek wanted Nick Stauskas because he said he could shoot 99 out of 100 free throws. Like that. That was like the deciding factor. <laughs> but the other crazy thing was they were so bad for years and years and years. Even his first two years, you know, they, then they hi- they fire Mike Malone. They bring in Ty Corbin. They bring in George Carl. Then after all that for George Carl's first full season, that 2015-16 season, he says to them, and I want this team to win 50 games. He just gave this number. The team won <laughs> 20-something games here before. He's like, all right, now get me to 50 games. So George Carl gets up on the whiteboard. They have all their players listed out, point guard, shoot, or guards, wings, uh, bigs. And George Carl is just crossing out the names that he thinks aren't good enough to be on a 50-win team. <laughs> I have like four games left. So one of them obviously was DeMarcus Cousins. And in that meeting, George Carl was was with the Nuggets right when they traded Carmelo to New York and they got all this Mod Podge pieces back and they become the three seed right after. But George Carl is thinking, well, maybe we trade DeMarcus, you know? He doesn't say let's trade him, but maybe let's trade DeMarcus and like see maybe we get four pieces back and we're a better overall composite team. So that maybe we should trade DeMarcus is what leaked out to the whole George Carl's trying to trade DeMarcus, the snake in the grass. Uh, emoji that he tweeted out. It was because Vivek wanted them to win 50 games. That's why all that whole thing started. But, uh, and, there's, and there's so much synergy too, Jake, between, I mean, obviously all these teams tanking at the same time, they're going to be drafting around each other. So the what ifs in the scenarios here are incredible. And then yeah. there's just the, the fleecing, right? The, the trades within these teams, and Sacramento and the Sixers histories now are, are intertwined, you know, yeah. forever. Um, because Vivek, um, because Nick Stauskas, um, uh, and because swaps, et cetera. I, I know you brought up the rights to Ricky Sanchez and Liberty Ballers and kind of the cult relationship that the Sixers fan base had. Did the other fan bases embrace this in the same way, or are there similar comparisons or parallels between the way that the fan bases of those teams uh, you know, bought into this? For sure. Boston was all behind it, absolutely. Um, they're not the, – the, the Boston fan base isn't really as – Covered. I mean, I really only talk about the Liberty Ballers guys and the Rice Ricky Sanchez guys in the book, partially maybe a little bit of bias because I was involved in that. But also, I don't think it was really being discussed. Like, I don't think the national media, like, I don't think on first take they were complaining about what this was doing to Boston fans. You know, the theme over and over was like, how are Philly fans going to respond to this? But when I was in Boston, like, absolutely, that crowd 
it's funny. I, I, I'm from Philly. I went to school in Boston. I live in New York. And all three cities are like, it's different here. We're blue collar. Blah, yada, yada. It's kind of all the same. Um, and they all have great, great crowds. And Boston would get up for those 13, 14 Celtics, even though they knew they were going to lose. Um, they would love, they would love like to see a little play from Kelly Olynyk or like something with Courtney Lee, or even when that, that next year, when they had Marcus Smart as a rookie um, and like James Young, I remember, oh my God, Boston fans were drooling over James Young <laughs> thinking he was going to be the steal of the draft. Including the one on TV. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I remember, I mean, especially from having friends up there, like in school who were Celtics fans and not, and just like being in the arena and going on media and being just part of that Boston ecosphere, people were obsessed with James Young. And like, there was, there was more of like a, a hope of like it turning around soon in Boston because they did right. Like Danny Ainge swung the Isaiah Thomas trade. They immediately made the playoffs that next year. Like they traded people forget that they traded KG and Paul Pierce in 2013, when they flamed out in that first round against Brooklyn, they tanked 13-14. Then they made the playoffs right again in 14-15. Like, they really – and to kind of go back to your question, Mike, earlier that we cut short with the Vivek stuff, the big difference at Boston is that they've had this ownership management synergy since 2003. And you look at all the really good organizations around the, around the league, like the top premier organizations. This is not a novel concept at this point. Like, we, we now know this. Boston, San Antonio, Miami – OKC is not like, you know, the banner type in terms of winning and contending, but in terms of the top to bottom, like this organization is always doing something like a lot of organizations are just like a dog chasing their own tail, just like trying to either make the playoffs or stay relevant or whatever. Like OKC, whether they're trying to make the playoffs, trying to rebuild, they have a uniform direction in, in, in uh, conjoining with that ownership group. Um, Boston, I think of all those teams was the one like Sam, never really had that at the end of the day with Philly, right? That's why he wrote in that letter, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I have your confidence anymore to do this. Like, it was very, very thinly veiled, I think, um, that line in his resignation letter. Boston, they've always had that synergy. I mean, now I think, especially talking to executives around the league today for the rumor stuff I do with Bleacher Report, like, definitely the Celtics people are kind of looking at them like, what do you do with all your picks? Like, you really only have – Smart Tatum and Jalen Brown, like a great group, but like that's all you got. Like you were always holding Memphis pick and this Clippers pick, but at the same time, like they got two guys at least. Smart, you know, is probably one of the better six men. You have to tip your hat to what they got. They've just kind of had some, which just like we talked about to begin with, the the uncertainty, the the monkey wrenches that come into play. They just never have pieced together the the additions around that core, but they have that core for sure. Yeah, reading one of the things that I loved about the book is that, you know, there's been so much written about the tanking era, but one of the things that I think is hard to appreciate until we dive into the deep reporting you did with so many different people on the org chart is just how many people are negatively affected by the race to try to optimize your title chances. And yeah. there, there's a quote that Thaddeus Young gave you that I, I circled that I hope I, I'm allowed to read, but yeah. I thought it was a really, it was, it applied to Hinky, but I think there are a lot of lessons that could apply to all of these teams. And he said, you know, quote, when you're being secretive, you got to give people something to understand the meaning to your madness of what's going on. Sam didn't understand. You got to give him something. We in this league, the basketball players, are entertainers. And to some extent, the GMs have to do the same thing. You have to give some type of feedback. You have to give some type of entertainment, something to talk about. He just wasn't willing to give that. And 
his point was basically that the strategy may be sound, but there's so much other stuff you have to do to kind of maintain it over the course of how you're executing it that Sam, for all his brilliance, looking at kind of winning every transaction, the information game that he owned, just sort of the, the fresh thinking he provided, he didn't do. And, and that's, I think, a really interesting lesson when you look at Sacramento, where just, again, everybody's chasing this, like, shifting ownership structure. Yeah. But even teams like Phoenix and uh, Orlando, I thought, was kind of a, a sneaky, interesting team that was mentioned. We can talk about them. But yeah. it just seems like that there are so many ways that if you don't stay on the same page all the way through the organization, like, there are so many little things that add up. Yeah. Um, and that's just to me was an interesting lesson to the book when you talk to these players and these coaches and just the instability that follows sort of this tension of yeah wanting to lose. Yeah, I think I, I hear day to day talking to exactly on the league today. Like when you make a, when you do make a mistake, everyone's going to make a mistake. Sometimes it's I mean most of the time I think in, in terms of team building, it's how you respond to that mistake that that really defines the mistake more so than the mistake itself. Like if you don't course correct, like you, you you can make a mistake. You can take Joel Okafor at three, for example, and still become, you know, a juggernaut in the Eastern conference and move on. But, you know, if you are like Phoenix and I think Phoenix was really fascinating to include in this because they were supposed to be worse than Philly that 13, 14 season. Like I remember in Vegas, I remember sitting at um, tacos and beer um, at that, that restaurant a couple miles from uh, UNLV, I remember Matt Moore from uh, HP Basketball was like, I think the Cel- the Suns are going to be worse than Philly. Like, and everyone watch out. Like, not to call out Matt, but like, I agree with him too. And they, you know, they they have this surprise year to run. They run 48 games. They almost make the playoffs. And then like, they just never, they were, they were never, that was Hanky's point of trading Drew Holiday. Like that Suns team, as fun as they were, as, as much as they were a story that year, they were only going to be the eight seed to get waxed by the Spurs or whoever was going to be their first round opponent. And if you really want to compete for a title, you can't do that. You can't be chasing that eight seed when you realize your talent is only that. You have to trade Goran Dragic earlier than than you did. You have to move on from all your pieces. And then you're not tanking again in 27, 27 to 2018, getting that first round pick and getting uh, DeAndre Ayton four years after you were originally supposed to tank. I think the same thing in Orlando, to your point, um, to kind of look at all the, the six main characters, the Magic really had a, a run in moving and tearing down that Dwight Howard thing. Like they got pieces, they got Tobias Harris back for JJ Redick, who was just on an expiring contract from Milwaukee and then left to go sign in for agency with the Clippers. Like that is a steal. They trade, they got it. They got a huge package back for Dwight, all these picks, Nikola Vucevic became what he became, you know? Um, but Rob Hennigan from Orlando, from, from OKC, bringing, bringing his whole, you know, thunder magic to Orlando really just thought, cause the Thunder didn't really have a plan to draft KD, Russell Westbrook, and Harden in three straight years, right? They just said, let's get the best prospect available. And all those guys were just so competitive and uniquely hardwired to, like, want to be the best. And not just, like, be the best, but be, like, a winner in the NBA. And, and they were willing to work together. And, like, they used that fire to benefit each other. And Orlando just thought, we're just going to do the same thing here. We're just going to get, like, 
uh, Victor Oladipo and Tobias Harris and Mo Harkless and Nikola Vucevic and then draft Aaron Gordon and then Mario Hazonia and just like throw it all together. And like, they'll just push each other and we'll, we'll have a contender again. They didn't realize that like, that's a rare thing. Like you need player development. You need to have a structure in place. Like they took Vilcarola Depot in 13 at number two. And like, they were trying to have a point guard and the next year they drafted Alfred Payton and moved Oladipo back off the ball. Like that might not sound like, such a you know catastrophe but that that kind of screws with the player's head as he's like trying to learn the nba and figure it out and like am i the guy here now you're taking the ball out of my hands it's just like i think that that's what orlando fell short on yeah and it's interesting you mentioned phoenix and orlando because i feel like they almost like kind of come out have the inverse they come out from the inverse ways where phoenix gets too good too quick and then there's sort of this ambition kind of kills them a little bit where it's like, well, we now we got to take the next step. And then you have Isaiah Thomas coming in and that just really messes with that chemistry. And you don't appreciate what you had in Channing Fry. And now you're chasing LeBron and LaMarcus yeah. Aldridge. And it's just like, but then you have Orlando where it's like, they knew they weren't good enough and they did a lot of this stuff, right. I think you're right about the player development side, but at the end of the day, they just didn't have the guy. They yeah. didn't have so they ended up kind of becoming the team that they didn't want to be. So how am I to not take those two stories and say, well, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't with this stuff? You're right. You're right. And I think I mean there's an executive I guess I can't name because he's just I, I'm just I'm rolling, rolling my eyes to you guys. Told me that like um anyone who thinks that you're just gonna tank and get out of it is is arrogant. Like you're 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 saying that you're going to defy luck and you're going to also have a better player development scouting team than everybody else like even if you get the wrong guy you're still going to grow that guy like that's it's a lot it's a very arrogant thing this this think like we're going to be able to do this um it's not that easy and it's very easy to tank and like make moves and like win win the transaction right like sam Presti stockpiled all these 17 first round picks wherever he has in the next couple of years like at the end of the day Shea Gildas Alexander is basically an all-star. His rookie contract is going to be coming up before we know it. Like they're going to have to trade those picks and consolidate or else people at a certain point are going to be looking at them. Like they're looking at Boston right now. Like it's not, it's very easy to just compile all the picks. It's hard to actually turn those picks into something of, of actual value. Like I was talking to somebody the other day about what James Wiseman, like what's the package of James Wiseman and that Wolves pick if it, if it does convey to Golden State, what could that get you? And I was saying, I mean, Wiseman at the end of the day is Wiseman, right? He's not this nebula. Like at a certain point, first round picks have this allure because you don't know what it could be. But at the end of the day, also, they do have to become lower value than the guy that is what you take in the pick. Like a guy on his rookie deal has value too. So at a certain point, like you just kind of have to pull a trigger that you might not necessarily have thought you would have. And you might pull the wrong trigger, which goes back to the mistake thing we talked about too. Interesting, like um... – dichotomy here right which is this is a player driven league where the power is in the players hands those same players are on one side of the table and tanking is such an organizational decision it has almost literally the opposite effect it, it hurts veterans on teams it makes them want to move and go to different places to leave the, the tanking team they're on it it also creates an atmosphere again where younger players can get stuck in you know ruts and potentially not develop in the way that they would on a team that is playing you know, meaningful basketball games late into the season. And so you kind of have this, this exactly what you just talked about. 
The second right of this whole passage is that if you get those players, you have to be able to build something and keep them in a place where they want to be a part of your franchise. How many number one picks right now are on another team? Or conversely, how many drafts didn't have that guy who made a difference? And that just so happens to be to the luck part where you end up with Evan Turner or Oladipo at the number two pick instead of, you know, uh, again, I mean, Embiid fell to three, but again, that's a very lucky thing the Sixers had was Embiid had a package. Kevin Durant number two, right? That's right. And Kevin Durant number two and Greg Oden goes number one. And so yeah. it's like... And you talk I, about I, 2014, that draft, that was mm-hmm. like supposed to be this hype draft, but like yeah. the best player is the guy who was hurt. Yeah. And how many how many superstar players right now are the Giannis, the Paul George, the Devin Booker, the Kawhi Leonard, the guy just not picked in that top five. You didn't have to tank for it. And all of a sudden, Donovan Mitchell is another great example. I mean, you mentioned Jalil for with the Sixers, Markel Fultz, obviously is one of the biggest what-ifs in, in you know, draft history. Um, and so it's it's so much of this I, I, I keep coming back to is it's time, situation, luck, atmosphere around you, elasticity of ownership. So you're basically painting a picture of, of dozens of variables across yeah. six very distinct entities that all took very different places. And of which of those teams that you mentioned, I'm one of them is still tanking and selling products in Orlando's case. Mm-hmm. One is the Lakers who just came off winning the title. The Sixers and Celtics are contenders. I mean, Celtics down this year, but arguably contenders. They were last mm-hmm. year. Sixers clearly are. Suns are a contender and Sacramento is essentially in the same place that they were when this book was written. So I find it's very interesting kind of the outcomes of, again, looking at something almost a decade later. Um, What is the biggest surprise that you learned while writing this, that you went in thinking one thing and then came out writing, uh, thinking something completely different, Jake? Well, to your point about tanking being an organizational thing and players having more power than ever, I didn't really think about this until I started having these conversations that I think tanking played a big factor in setting up this player empowerment movement, being that if an organization is willing to say, we're, we're interested in losing for two straight years just to get somebody like you, like how does that not then play a factor in boosting these guys' not necessarily egos, but their, their, their sense of self, their sense of agency in, in that marketplace. Um, like there's a whole section in um, the end of that 2013-14 season in the book about Nerlens Noel as a rookie when, I mean, he tweeted out, people remember 4-4-14, like he wanted to play. He had been out that whole year and all, all year long, the Sixers were basically going, the Sixers leadership from Hinky to his top guys in his front office to their top of their security staff to Brett Brown and his coaches, they were all trying to figure out the best way to kind of babysit Nerlens Noel. Like he's a 19-year-old kid who's getting paid millions of dollars who can't play basketball this year. Like you kind of have to keep an eye on him. And at the end, like at the end of all of that, like they're willing to have all these conversations and time and spend money and like figure out like how to maximize this player is because they needed to, right? Like they had to, they have no other choice. And I think that concept, obviously Nerlens has become one of these guys who is, is a superstar and can just say, Hey, trade me to Brooklyn and he gets traded to Brooklyn. But I think that gives you a glimpse of how, you know, the, even if the player is even aware of it, like they, they just command so much oxygen. I think it just naturally played a factor in players realizing Like LeBron set the tone in 2010, obviously, but I think just the way teams have been 
building, trying to get these guys at all costs and then building around them and catering to them and including them in decision-making processes because I don't want to lose them. I think that had to play the factor in in the player empowerment stuff. I think that's that's spot on. Um, I'm also curious too what your thoughts are. Look, we're in another age of tanking. It's different. The lottery is completely different now. With lottery reform, there are far fewer guarantees than even there were in already a pretty luck-oriented situation. We're seeing not unprecedented because we just talked about six great examples that kind of trailblazed. But what are your thoughts right now as kind of if you juxtapose going to writing a book about, you know, again, kind of the roots of tanking in this league to where we're watching a season that has had, again, number of teams tanking, tons of different, you know, uh, rationale and lots of different scenarios at play here. There's not one thing that links how the Rockets got to where they are to where the Thunder got where they are. Although there's, a specific player or two, um, you know, you could argue two, uh, who are a big part of that. So like, yeah. as this plays out right now, I mean, give us what your thoughts are. And then also like how writing the book and the learnings you got from that have helped you, you know, better understand, or maybe not what's going on right now. Yeah. I think what's going on right now, it's different from the current day and the, and the time period in the book is it's, it's so brazen. Like Philly, as much as they weren't outfitting the roster with legitimate NBA players, there was a met, there was a method behind that badness. That's how you get the TJ McConnell's and the Robert Covington's and even guys like, like Tim Frazier just got signed. I forget which team, mm-hmm. but um, he was like not in the league until Hinky gave him an opportunity to st- his first game. He started for, or he didn't start, but he came off the bench and played like 30 minutes. Um, Quick, this is a quick, I've already said this on one podcast, so I'm happy to say it now. One of the best stories in the entire book is that um, there's a lot of pressure on Philly to take Dante Exum at three in 2014 because of the Australian connection with Brett Brown. Uh, I think Brett even coached his father a little bit. Yeah, this is um, a good story, Ben. You're going to like this story. And so Philly had brought in Tim Frazier once. They thought he was, you know, a stud like barometer type you know like a great guy to bring in for your summer league roster guy and so they really wanted to see Dante Exum against someone like that you know he hadn't played in like 18 months they wanted to see and when he did play he was playing against like youth European league like they wanted to see him against American college players so at the time Exum was represented by Rob Polinka and they gave Polinka a list of guys. I said, pick your guy for Dante to go one-on-one with, which is like unheard of these days, right? Like all these top prospects go one-on-zero against the chair. Yeah. Um, so Philly gives this list. They choose Tim Frazier. So Tim Frazier versus Dante Exum. Like the, Tim Frazier was hyped up. Like this is an opportunity for him to, you know, like prove himself. And top five pick versus a guy who's supposed to be undrafted. Like it should be a blowout, right? Well, it was in favor of Tim Frazier. Like, can I curse on this? Yeah. Go for it. Tim Frazier kicked the shit. Out of, <laughs> like he wiped the floor with him. It looked like a high school senior, like, like beating the shit out of a, a freshman yeah. coming up yeah. to varsity practice that day. I mean, there was four years difference of them, but Dante was like six, six, like a big athlete. Tim Frazier was a scrawny little guy. And someone told me with the team, like, like walking off the court that day that that got Dante Axum out of the equation we were not <laughs> number three yeah so so Ben you have Tim Frazier to thank for being able to root for Joel and being <laughs> can you imagine I, I remember rooting for Tim Frazier he was at Penn State right I, I believe mm-hmm. you know you get a big 10 pedigree 
you're probably going to be a little bit more fit to, to, especially that first summer, you're only a few months out of college exactly. in Jason's case, coming off an injury and being young. That's a great story. I love hearing that. And thank you because uh, yeah. honestly, if the Sixers had missed on Embiid or had he not had a back injury, we ended up with Jabari Parker or even yeah. Wiggins. I don't know where I'd be right now. Uh, I wouldn't be on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so to, go go to answer your question, yeah. I think Hinky was doing that type of stuff. Like he knew the roster wasn't going to be good, but he also was like literally saying, let's give this guy a chance that no one else is giving to see if he actually can do this. Like Darius Johnson, Odom and Daniel Orton and Jarvis Renato. Um, Christian Wood was uh, one you focus yeah. on a lot. Also, you know, Ben's favorite, Jeremy yeah. Grant. Jeremy Grant. Yep. There's there's Darius Morris was one that I thought was kind of maybe the flip side of that. Yeah, but I say I say all these names to say, like, they weren't just saying, here, Shea Gildas-Alexander, your ankles hurt. Like, you're out for the year. Al Horford, out for the year. John Wall, out for the year. Like, that was not happening then. So I think we're seeing more and more brazen, like, we're just resting this guy. Like the Pelicans were trying to sit Anthony Davis at the end of 1819 so he wouldn't get hurt and also kind of the tank too. But the league was like, you have to sit Anthony Davis. Like, like I think if I think if he was still in New Orleans right now and they announced Anthony Davis is out for the year, everyone just kind of bat an eye and, and, and whatever. So the difference, that's a big difference between then and now. The other thing also, I mean, the lottery odds, I don't think has dissuaded anybody like they haven't it by any stretch of the imagination. It's interesting you say that. You don't think so? Because Howard Beck wrote a story for SI suggesting the opposite. Well, everything I've heard about this year in particular is like it's a top five draft. So if you get into that bottom three, um, you're guaranteed like top five. I think that's how it works, right? Yeah. There's four drawings. I don't uh, know. There, like, there's, there's either either way. Either way, you, you don't agree with Howard's premise, maybe. I don't know if you read his piece. I didn't read his piece. I'll have to look at it. Um, I'm, but I, I think he was pointing to, like, the playing game races um, and the gosh. fact that 24 of these – there are only, like, really a few teams who are just completely out of it. Well, yeah, there are more teams than ever. And the playing tournament was also a sneaky thing to do to curb tanking as well, um, which I didn't really talk about in the book because it came out, you know, obviously after um, – like this last season. Um, but that's definitely been a, I thought the teams at the bottom are not like dissuaded by the odds. Like they're not like OKC who was right. OKC before Shea got hurt was like right in the mix of the playing tournament. I mean, they were, they were always going to do what they were going to do, I think. Um, but like they, like that hasn't swayed them at all. And I think, um, you know, the Knicks would have probably gotten Zion Williamson if the, in that first year of the, the, the lottery odds kicked in 2019, um, but I, 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 I don't see any other team like the, it didn't stop the Knicks from bottoming out. And the same thing, um, you know, at the top of last year, like Minnesota had a rash of injuries, like they just bottomed out, you know, it's, and, and you get benefited from it. So it's not, I don't think, um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see any real change from it. I think it like, is a nice, um, publicity statement type thing. Like we're doing this now, you know, don't tank anymore. Um, but I don't think it, like, yeah, the playing tournament or more teams who think they can be in that mix. But if you're, if you're bad, like, I don't think any team is saying, Oh, we only have a 14% chance now that top pick. I think everyone's just still like our best option here is to tank. Mike, Mike Zarin told me to put a, a bow on this. Um, Cause he proposed the wheel uh, format, obviously very yeah. publicly. M- Mike Zarin is the assistant. That's number two guy for Danny age in Boston for a long time uh, yeah. for people who don't know. 
He, um, I, th- I think his wheel first came out publicly through Zach Lowe at ESPN.com, but I think he also proposed it or, or, or talked about it at Sloan one year. He's always said, as long as the draft order is somewhat dependent on, on your record, they will always be tanking. And I agree with him because teams like, like, like the Grizzlies, I think were the biggest benefiters of um, the lottery reform. They, we're supposed to win 50 games in 2018-19. Then, you know, they had some injuries. They trade Marcus All. They trade um, Mike Conley. And, or they don't trade Mike Conley, but they, they're trying to trade Mike Conley. Um, and they start benching. They bench Mike Conley on the stretch. They play these young guys. All of a sudden, they go down from, like, nine to six. And the, the sixth slot, like, five through seven now in the lottery are the bigger benefits, right? They jump all the way to two. They get John Morant. That's great for the Grizzlies, but when it's the Lakers, the Lakers bench LeBron because he has that ankle injury, whatever he had, end of 18-19. They moved up and get the fourth pick, which wouldn't have happened because there is there was no fourth drawing. That fourth pick was a big part of the Zion trade to get Anthony Davis. So Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, without that yeah. trade, you know, that, that doesn't happen. The big, um, the big fear is how that will benefit the big market teams who were like 9 through 12 or whatever in the lottery. Yeah, I mean, everything has a drawback. Um, it's interesting, now, now that you put it the way you do, I can see, certainly Ben and I have talked a lot about how what Oklahoma City is doing this year is just like totally ridiculous in a sense and what their strategy is. I have two loaded questions that I'm going to purposely <laughs> ask you. Uh, I'll go with the second one first because we've sort of touched on it. Do you think that the tanking era was good for the NBA? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Um, I'm going to say yes, because I think having this conversation out in the open has just made everyone around the league, like from guys like us to guys in the league smarter. And I think I wrote that in my prologue, like if anything, this book's like an ode to covering and talking with all these people and like learning how the NBA is very little about basketball, right? Like behind the scenes, the, 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 the calculus that drives these decisions and these transactions, like very little of that is actually really derived from this guy can't do X on the basketball court or this guy can do that, but not really well around this guy. Like we've talked about the fit between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid this whole time. Like they're still superstars. They're still like number one in the East ish, like because of how good those guys are. Like we're not like, like the, 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 the personalities behind the scenes, I think are a bigger deal than their actual fit on the court. Right. So I think, having these conversations about team building and evaluating picks and scouting and whatever, like there was no draft Twitter when this started, like there wasn't, like I was going on draft express before, you know, Gavoni joined ESPN and like finding agents for second round picks to like get their contact info to like give them publicity. That's kind of how I got my start making contacts in the league because there was no draft Twitter. Like the fact that there's more coverage of the decision-making process, I think it holds executives more accountable and like there's more of a, conversation that we get to have with them and we're all just kind of learning in that process okay and then the second loaded question does tanking work i think 
to what we said in the beginning, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I think that's like something that teams don't factor in when they do make the decision to do it. I think it's very easy to sell to your ownership like Orlando just did trading Vooch, Gordon, Fournier. Like they definitely sold ownership. Look, this is a top five draft. Um, we can get into that top five. We add that guy to Markel Fultz and Jonathan Isaac and we're set. Like that's a very easy selling point to make, but it's a lot harder in actuality. And once you do get to that bottom, once you do strip it down, it's very easy to strip it down. It's a lot harder to build it back up. It's also very easy to build something into a 45, 50 win team, way harder to get to 55 to 60 and actually be a contender. And that's something that I think people don't factor in when they make that tanking decision. But when you do it right, and by doing it right, I think that means being patient and being willing to pivot and maybe be a year behind schedule. Um, I think there's there, the benefits are obvious. And like we've seen with Phoenix and Boston and Philly and even the Lakers, because all those years that they were terrible trying to still be good about Kobe, you know, they racked up Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, all those guys to trade for AD anyway. So I think that's just a perfect example. Like the Lakers weren't even trying to tank and they did and it benefited them in the long run partially because of the Lakers, but they also collected all these assets that helped them, you know, improve eventually too. Yeah. It, just, it gives you more avenues. The, the, the whole point is it, it provides you with more different opportunities to get to where you end up wanting to go. And each of those teams you mentioned took a different path through tanking as kind of the central premise, mm-hmm. but all in very different ways to get to where they are now as you know, four of the contenders in the league. And so it, it ultimately, what are you trying to do? You're trying to increase the amount of opportunity you have to become good and not middle, uh, middling, I should yeah. say. It's just that you have to lose while you do it. And that's the challenge sure. of, that's the central challenge of all of this is it is still an entertainment business. Um, well, and, and having the ownership, you know, back to what Jake mentioned in the very beginning, the continuity, the reason why the Wizards will never be able to do this. I'm sorry to use them as the example, Mike, but like they do not have an owner who's going to allow for them to be, for it to be okay to just suck. You know, that's not how Ted owns the team or what he's trying to get out of it. And so being the 10 seed this year is more important to him than it is to be, you know, uh, a potential yes. top three pick. Yeah, I, this is the same person who ushered in, came into the team with his 10-point plan that basically was like a guide to thinking that he didn't follow himself. Um Has any, I mean, Jake, to your point about like sort of doing this right, like I know you've talked about those teams that have gotten good, that to me, a lot of that seems just sort of like natural circle of life sort of thing in the NBA. Has anyone actually done this right? It's in terms of the strategy worked, the people who were in charge of the strategy kind of had the right idea. There was alignment, there was uh, with management, and it wasn't, it didn't work just in the sense of they added more talent to the team, but like this actually worked. Well, I, I guess to say doing it right, I really mean don't do it wrong. And by doing it wrong, I mean what Sacramento has done, right? Like, okay, they, yeah, they they had this one goal. Like, members of of Mike Malone's coaching staff told me when they got hired, we had a two year window to like get our feet wet, build this thing together. Then, then like year three was when we really had the expectations to like make some noise. But right away, they started slow, and Vivek was like, "No, get me Rudy Gay and do this and do that and yada yada yada," like. Billy did change course with Hinky two and a half years into it, but like he got two and a half years of a uniform direction. Like for not many franchises get that. It's like, here's two plus seasons. Like this is our direction. I think that's why Hinky was so um, 
accepted by a big portion of the Philly fan base. Philly was Sacramento kind of before Sacramento for a long time. Between mm-hmm. 01 and Hankey getting there, between that finals berth, like there was that Eastern Conference semifinals thing with with uh, with Boston, but like no one really. That was a Derrick Rose ACL injury that made that happen. To be honest, and that Boston yep. team sure they won seven games, but like it was a wonky matchup. And like yeah. it, they, I think the Sixers just got a lucky ride to that seventh game. Honestly, the, the ownership group actually wanted to tank before that season. They're like, we'll ride this year out because then some money gets off the books. I think like that was Elton Brands last year, his contract or something like that. And then we'll, yes. we'll but then they got sw- they got caught up in that momentum and said, let's go trade for Andrew Bynum. And they right. got really lucky that Bynum's contract was off the books and they were able to just kind of like pivot very quickly because Sam came in and kind of cleaned up the books. Right. But if they didn't bring in someone like Sam, if they brought in a more traditional guy like Jeff Bauer, like they were looking at, you know, maybe they wouldn't have gone so to the bottom of the barrel. Maybe they probably would have been like right back in that. I mean, this might make Ben kind of shudder, but maybe they would have been like right back in that eight to 11 spot, seven to 11 in the East for the next couple of years. Like maybe they'd be like Chicago has been for a while. Right. So what do you say then to the counter argument, which is something we talked about earlier in the show that like some of these, it seems like more and more stars are coming from lower down the draft. The, I mean, you, you focus a little bit. My favorite part, one of my favorite parts of the book is the whole Giannis Antetokounmpo sweepstakes that you talk about in 2013 with Atlanta, uh, basically trying their damnedest to, Kind of, can I share this story? Because I loved it. This yeah, idea yeah. That, that Danny Ferry like invited Giannis over to hang out with his kids, you know, during his visit. They were trying to keep it like so secret that visit, and then they don't get him anyway. Yeah. Um, I love that story. But just, you know, the Giannis is the Devin Booker is the key of the Suns, and he was the 12th pick. Uh, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, all these guys are not getting picked in the top five. What do you say to the argument then that that sort of proves the folly of tanking and that it actually maybe the traditionalists have a point here? Just to add on to that, isn't so much of what Mike just said, though, kind of part of the same beast, which is the league has gotten so much smarter. Therefore, there's just more intelligence and better yeah. scouting, more analytics that goes into. Yeah, but but they're also players. worse drafting in a lot of ways. I think I yeah. forget who's written this this the piece. Maybe it was Tom Haberstroh who was like noting that if you look at like the success of high draft picks, like people were not getting better at it in yeah. terms <laughs> of. Um, and I don't know. I think that's like a complicated question. But sure. yeah, I mean, what do you? I mean, what do you think is? What do you think of that argument that like you know maybe building from the middle is good given these examples? I think it's possible. It's like possible. It's a lot harder. And I think I don't have the numbers you were just talking about, but back in the day, like when, when people, when I was asking these exact, I mean, Philly, for example, that, that new ownership group came in in 2010, they asked Aaron Barsley, who was their early analytics guy, um, you know, give us a, like, I want you to do a, like a, a full empirical analysis on all the last 10 title teams and tell me where they got those players from. And then I also said, you know, give me, like who was the best drafter of the last bunch of years it actually turned out to be the Sixers. The Sixers before Hinky got there, ironically had an incredible draft strategy. Like they got Lou Williams in the second round, Willie Green in the second round and Kyle Korver for cash in the second round. They got Iguodala at nine. They got Thad Young, I think at like 11. They 13. got or yeah, was they, it 12 or something like that. Something like yeah. that. They got Vucevic in the late teens. Drew Holiday was at 16. They were a great drafting group. But the, that first analysis said that, like, most of those players were top five picks. 
I don't have the number off the top of my head, but at least in that time period, um, it was, it was more, you know, that's how you get, that's how you win a title. I think with now, like, like Donovan Mitchell falling to 13. I remember this is not the two mile horn, but I was a big Mitchell fan that year. And I think a lot of the times I'll, the reason why a guy, cause we're not seeing too many guys pop off in the twenties, right? Usually it's like in that 10 to 16 range. I think it's because there's some like knock on that guy. That is the narrative around his draft stock, not even in the media. I'm talking about just among executives and at a certain point, like look at Michael Porter Jr. Like the Kings were very much considering Michael Porter Jr. number two that year. They were, which would have been still a mistake over Luka Doncic, right? But it's just, and they didn't take him. So, you know, what does it really mean? But they were considering him. 11 teams also didn't because of the back injury. Like all these teams, medical red flagged him. You can't be that team in a lot of, a lot of people's minds. You can't be that team to take him at seven, let's say, and get screwed mm-hmm. and you're out of a job. So I think a lot of those guys, when they fall, it's because there's like a big red flag that's like dropped. Okay. Donovan yeah. Mitchell was old and technically considered old, not old, but older and technically considered a little smaller. Like what was his position? Like I definitely thought he could do on ball creativity like he's doing now, but that was like a knock on it. And the shooting wasn't really considered that real. Um, Devin Booker, like no one thought he was a scorer. Everyone thought he was just an off-ball traditional two-guard, like kind of like what Gary Trent has become. Like mm-hmm. no one really thought he was – like Phoenix people told me this too. They had no idea he was going to be able to create off pick and rolls and do everything he's doing now. Right. I mean, that's a Calipariism as well. Tyler Heroes, you know, was victim of the similar thing. Yeah. Cal purposely underuses his players in college. He gives them specific roles. And obviously yeah. – there you go. Bringing in five blue chips a year, you know, yeah. you're going to minimize some of the right. talents. Um, yeah, this, this this is really fascinating too because I know we're almost at the at the end here, and I, I also have to. Uh, have yeah. To reel. <laughs> um, but with that being said, like Jake, give us give us the last thing you want the audience here to know about the book. Kind of, and again, yeah. this is not to say everyone. By the way, you can go pre-order now, I believe, and it comes yeah. out next week, so everyone should go do that. Probably should have been, been pimping that the entire time. Built um, to lose but, is the name of the built book. Built to lose. But so, so what's the, what's the final takeaway? The final takeaway is that, you know, Mike's talked about it a little bit here. Um, you know, I think my calling card over my career has been, you know, I like to get on the phone and talk to people. And I had a high school uh, journalism advisor who's partially one of the people who the book's dedicated to. Um, my high school paper is like literally a dynasty. They've been the best paper in New Jersey for like 12 straight years now. Um, he taught me, uh, if you don't have anything new in your story, then you don't have a story. I've like really taken that to heart throughout all of my reporting. And I think that like over 90% of, of the pages in that book, like have, are they're, they're like entirely full of a brand new original reporting or something that's furthered from the public. Like even something like everyone knows about Kobe yelling, you know, soft like Charmin in practice, but like I have like the full like autopsy of that day, what happened, what set that up, like stuff like that. Evan Turner, um, there's this whole like thing in Sixers fan lore about Hanky driving him into the, him to the airport. Like that real story's in there. Um, you know, and Evan Turner put uh, Spencer Hawes's Obama toilet paper on there. Like I have on Instagram and Twitter. I have that real story, stuff like that. That's like funny and like human interesty stuff to like, I bring you in the war room and bring you into trade call conversations and those pre-draft workouts like Dante Exum. Um, like we talked about, like you're going to learn so many stories that you're not going to learn anywhere else unless you get this. Um, and I'll leave you with one more because you asked me what the best King story was. Um, this is more just like 
a wow factor thing. Um, the summer before 2015, 2014-15, before Mike Malone got fired, they were already starting to feel the pressure. And that was kind of a big theme um, to begin with from the start because they hired Pete D'Alessandro after Mike Malone. Um, so they that, that's, that's been a thing, you know, hanging over the whole franchise. And um, George Carl starts to be whispered as this name, as, as a potential replacement. There's this connection to Chris Mullen and D'Alessandro from St. John's. Um, so all the Kings coaching staff are out to lunch in Sacramento or in, in Vegas for the summer league. And the strip has what a thousand restaurants on it. But lo and behold, as this coaching staff is walking out from lunch at La Pecheria of the restaurant, I forget what hotel it was in. Um, as they're walking out in walks, Vivek, Chris Mullen and George Carl. Like, <laughs> restaurant. Yeah. Well, George, I talked to George about it on the record. Like he's even swears to this day that it wasn't a job interview. They were just trying to like suss each other out. But like, lo and behold, six months later, they fired Mike Malone. They brought in Ty, they elevated Ty Corbin for a little, but then like George Carl was the guy. Didn't, didn't Mike Malone say it to his coaches? Like we got to win the summer league. Yes. And they were like, what are you talking about? And then they, I believe they did win the summer league. I think they made it to the championship game. Yeah, I don't remember. I, if, if they did and I didn't include it, that was a big loss on my part. I just remember there was there was one year they did win, and Vivek said that like this is the first of many titles we'll have. Yes. And yes. I forget if that was the same year. Anyway, Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report. Go buy his book, Built to Lose, How the Tanking Era – NBA's tanking era changed the league forever. You can pre-order it on Amazon. You can pre-order it through the Triumph Book website. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this era in NBA history. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, this has been a real episode of the Limited Upside Podcast. Oh.